Good morning, everyone. This morning, as we are contemplating what the Lord's done for us as we celebrate table fellowship as commanded by the Lord, remembrance of his death and in anticipation of being gathered to him, I've chosen a section from Luke 5, 17, 17 through 39, and it has to do with release from sin and who it is that finds this release by God's grace and what kind of reactions come from it. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we can, by your grace, come and hear your word, proclaim the gospel, pray for one another, and anticipate the glorious reunion we'll have in the end times when you come and gather us to yourself. We ask that you would uh, help everyone see clearly what you've said. And if there are any who do not know you, may today be the day of salvation where they find release from sin. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to Luke five seventeen. I'll read the text, Luke five seventeen. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now, to put this in the context of what's already happened in Luke, there are some thieves, some key words, sometimes the key words are rather simple, like sitting. And we'll see how that has significance in Luke or Luke Acts. And interestingly, Jesus is teaching, and here are the law teachers from all around, even Jerusalem, there as well. So what's going to happen when Jesus teaches before the teachers? How's that going to go? Well, if we look at the context, we see in chapter 5 earlier at the Sea of Galilee, there were the disciples. Jesus taught out in the boat. They had the great catch of fish. Jesus said, uh, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Peter, when he saw the great catch, had said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He saw that he was standing before someone more than just an ordinary teacher. And then there were um, a crowd of people. There were people cleansed. And Jesus withdrew to the wilderness. So there are some themes, and I'll try to bring those out as we go through this. Now let's look at this issue of the sitting, okay, sitting sitting there. How is that a key term? Well, it's really not a, that common of a term. I look up every time it's used in Luke Acts. It's not rare, but... It's 20 times in Luke Acts. And they're sitting there, and that's a little bit ominous if you see what's already happened. Jesus had been teaching in Nazareth, in his hometown, from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And there was a reaction against him. And here you start wondering, what's going to happen? Here are these leaders from all around, and they're sitting there. What will come of that? But we need to realize that 
God has a purpose through Messiah, and that as it's revealed, there will be those who reject what God is doing. So in the in Luke Acts, sitting sometimes is a good thing, like Jesus later seated at the right hand of God. So if you want to turn to, to a preview, that would be in Luke 1, 78 and 79. I started a little bit late, but I got it started. I almost, I forgot to start the timer again. I wonder why. It says start timer. I didn't look at my own notes. So, Luke 1, 78 and 79. Luke acts is magnificent. I've been studying it intensely for 20 years, and I still feel like I'm learning more. It's so amazing. The previews, so that when something comes up later, gets our attention. Luke 1, 78 and 79. This was Zechariah, now filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 1, 70, 67. Here's what he says. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit, there's our word, in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Visit there is uh, the word Eric talked about in Sunday school, where we get episkopos would be the, the noun, overseers, but here it is a verb, and it would be as God comes in a visitation. And throughout the scriptures, when God visits, there are some who are blessed and saved and others who are judged. And that's a preview in the, on the lips of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, of what's going to happen. Some will, unexpected people will respond with joy and salvation, release their sins, and others will become angry and grumble and reject Messiah. A visitation always causes a crisis. A crisis that leads to salvation and or judgment. Both happen. Sometimes sitting means sitting in judgment. I'll refer again to Luke. I'll just cite this one. Luke 20, 42 and 43. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There again is sitting. So there's an irony going on here, just thinking of that word sitting. The irony is this. Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, as we'll see in this text, the Son of Man, comes, born of a virgin, in keeping with the promises of Scripture, God from all eternity coming into our world. And as he is teaching and releasing people from sin, the religious authorities are sitting there and they want to be sitting in authority to judge that God did it wrong by sending this particular one, Jesus of Nazareth. So there's the irony. We'll see that develop as we go along. God in his tender mercy sent Messiah as a visitation to help those who sit in darkness. It says here, and 
the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now that is a, an allusion to Luke 4, where Jesus comes into his hometown after being tempted in the wilderness. First 13 verses of Luke 4, temptation, where Jesus overcame every temptation, where Israel had previously in the wilderness failed every temptation, alluding back to the Old Testament. So after that, Jesus comes into Nazareth, and it says in Luke 4, 14 and 15, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So after the temptation, returns to Galilee, as Luke says, in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout through all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all until he was rejected, <laughs> okay? Because when he began preaching from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he said, today is this is fulfilled in your hearing. By the end of that section in Luke 4, they want to throw him off a cliff. So this is how it goes in Luke X. Some people will see the truth and respond with hope and joy at the announcement of good news, and others who have a stake in the system as it already is, the ones with status and authority, the ones who sit in judgment, will want to be rid of him because he threatens their position by bringing release to sinners. So here he teaches before teachers who, as we see, are sitting in judgment because they don't like what's going on. Now let's look at the next two verses, Luke 5, 18 and 19. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and when they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. Pay attention to the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So these people were convinced that Jesus had the power to heal their lame friend. And they were resourceful. The crowd wasn't going to make it possible to get close. Crowds, aklas in, in the Greek, when they show up in Luke Acts, well, this would just be true in the Middle East, they can be very fickle. The crowds can turn one way or another quickly. They can be praising or they can be wanting to start a riot. A lot of things like that happen. So here's the crowd. Notice it says, behold. There's an imperative there in the Greek. Luke is telling us, pay attention. This is important. Look what happens. This will teach us something. We'll learn something about God's ways. We'll learn something about how prophecy is fulfilled. So these fickle crowds come up again and again in Luke Acts. Let me give you a preview. You can jot this down. You don't have to turn to it. Luke 11, 29 and 30. It says this, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation, for it seeks for a sign. 
And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Eric was talking about that in Sunday school. This generation is a pejorative term for the people who reject God's ways. And so the reference to Jonah is a reference to Jesus' resurrection on the third day, as we know. So the crowds, we would think it's really good to have a big crowd. But in Luke, often when the crowds gather, Jesus retreats. That happened in Luke 5 right before this. The crowds aren't always a great opportunity. They could also be a great temptation and a great danger. And we see that in the history of the church. The big crowds are often the things that would give chance for uh, trying to find accolades from people. One of the temptations of Jesus in Luke 4 was to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple where there would be a crowd to have the angels catch him. That would be a chance to have um, status in the eyes of the people without going to the cross. And Jesus rebuked Satan for that. Let me give you one more, Luke 12 and verse 1. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, now what would somebody do today? Take up an offering. Get a mailing list. Send out prayer cloths. You can, what is it, $40 will get you a little jar of anointing oil. That'll do you a lot of good. No, the the crowds aren't an opportunity to cash in. They're a danger. And uh, they gather together, they're stepping on one another. Here's what Jesus does, uh, or says, Luke 12, 1. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware. Beware, that's the key term. When you see it, pay attention. Beware, danger. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The crowds are a danger because they may entice religious people to cash in, to gain status, to be someone great. That comes up in Acts. Simon the sorcerer was one who was considered someone great. But this is not God's purpose to cash in to be someone great or to have a hypocrisy, but Jesus came to be rejected and to die for sins. Let's go to verses 20 and 21. Okay. Resourceful man, lower the man down, paralyzed man, through the tile roof, move the tiles, put him down, got him right there. The crowds are there. Pharisees sitting, religious leaders sitting, what's going to happen? Luke 5, 20, 21. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, now literally the Greek is man, okay? Man, your sins are forgiven you. Now notice earlier it said the power was there. The power was there to perform healing. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. 
the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they began reasoning. The term there would indicate that they would have a debate about this. They want to debate it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Turns out this is, they're correct. They are correct. Only God's forgiveness of sins is what matters. So he says, man, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven, a fee of me, released. And that reminds us of Luke 4.18. Luke 4.18, I spoke about this earlier, where he cited Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release. There's our word, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Here is Jesus proclaiming release here as he did by citing Scripture when the scroll was handed to him in Nazareth as narrated in Luke 4.18, release. And this proves that he's making a messianic claim. More than that, that he's God the Son. Man here in the Greek is vocative. He dresses him as man and pronounces release of sin. His sins are sent off. Now, we'll, we'll notice here, it's easy to say. Your sins are sent off while he's still laying there. They are, but you can't see that. And so this is going to cause some murmuring and questioning. Pharisees question, who is this? Accuse him of being a blasphemer. Now, dialogizomai, that's a nice word, means reason. They want to debate. That would imply a logical dispute. They believe that mere man, not understanding who Jesus is, is claiming a a divine prerogative. And they're right. God alone forgives sins. Yes. And if Jesus were not God incarnate, he would be a blasphemer. But he really is God incarnate. How do we know God is the one who forgives sins? Jot these down. You won't have time to find them. Micah 7.18. Micah 7.18. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. God is the one who passes over Sins. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. That's what God said. I uh, pass over. I wipe out. I remove. I release your transgressions for his sake. 
that he might have a forgiven people, a justified people, a cleansed people, a released people who would give glory to his name. Because what God does for us, we don't earn, we don't deserve, but God is a merciful God. What did the man on the stretcher do? He laid there as his buddies brought him down into that situation. But he did believe. He saw their faith, including his. I got a new commentary just a few days ago, downloaded on Logos. It was a good deal. It turns out the commentary on Lucas by Edwards is really great. He says this, Strzok, Strzok and Billerbeck rightly conclude there is no place known to us in which the Messiah has the authority to pronounce forgiveness of sins from his own power. That's not something they expected. They had a different idea than who Messiah really is, God incarnate, the virgin-born son of the Son of God, the preexistent one. Is it indeed a blasphemy to wrongly claim the prerogatives of God in forgiveness of sins? Well, Leviticus 24.16. I'm going to jot this down. Leviticus 24.16. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, to claim prerogatives that are only God's considered blasphemy. The name of God is holy. But Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Israel. He is the sinless one. He is the one who releases from sins. And what we need is far greater than people know. Most religious consumers think they need answers to solve problems, more happiness, more things, more whatever it is that we're looking for. But what we need Every sinner needs, every person needs release from sin. Release from sin. Let's go to verses 22 and 23. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? Well, we would think it's pretty easy to say sins have been forgiven because who knows? Maybe they're still there. Can't really see them. But if he gets up and walks, obviously he wouldn't be able to do that without supernatural work of God. Now, here's one you can turn to, Luke 22, 34 and 35. I hope a lot of people gain an appreciation for Luke-Acts. It's brilliance. It's the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. Luke's uh, way of writing is so profound as far as using previews. And you, you see, they're, not, they're always there for a reason. Simeon is one speaking to Mary who speaks by the Holy Spirit, and it gives a preview of salvation. Luke 2, 34 and 35. As you know, we're in Luke 5 now. Luke 2, 34 and 35. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed 
for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Simeon, speaking by the Spirit to Mary, Joseph, is predicting that there's going to be a mixed reaction, that there's going to be a division, that there's going to be rejection and sorrow, and that the fall and rise, the fall of the mighty, the self-righteous, the teachers who don't want to listen to Jesus, and the rise of the people who had absolutely nothing going for them, like this paralyzed man, or like lepers, or like the woman with an issue of blood who was perpetually unclean. So were lepers going around yelling out unclean, unclean, so nobody would accidentally get close to them and be unclean and not be able to go to worship. It says in Psalm 44, 21, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. How is it that this man, Jesus, is aware of the very reasoning in their hearts? There are so many claims about the deity of Christ in the, in the Gospels and really amazing ones here in Luke, and people miss it. Only God forgives sins. Jesus declares release. Only God knows the heart. Jesus knows the reasoning of the heart. And so the heretics, like the Jehovah Witnesses, who claim that Jesus is a created being, are trying to confuse people and lie to them to deny the deity of Christ, which is a damnable heresy, by the way. But everywhere it's telling us that he is indeed God. He's not blaspheming. He's not falsely claiming divine prerogatives. He's, in fact, God the Son. Reasoning. God knows the heart. Well, how do you say that? Well, Psalm 44, 21. God knows the secrets of the heart. How about Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10? Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart. And for all of us, that's a scary thing until we know that the blood of Jesus cleansed our hearts. Yes, they're reasoning in their hearts, and he knows it. And he's demonstrating that their reasoning is futile because they're rejecting the promise of God given throughout the Scriptures. The heart-knower is walking the face of the earth. Jesus, the Son of God. Verse 54. But so that... Excuse me, Luke 5, 24. I skipped a two in there when I looked at my notes. Luke 5, 24. 
but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And there's a purpose clause. I have that in my notes here. It's on the slide. Kina, it's a purpose statement. This is how you know. He says, your sins are forgiven. He says, stand up and walk. This is a demonstration of the deity of Christ. That he's the son of man, the Messiah spoken of in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This demonstrates it. Reason all you want. Get angry all you want. Rail against Christ all you want. See him as a threat to your religious authority. But he is who he claims to be. And those who trust in him find redemption, release from sins, and the hope of eternal life. And this is a demonstration. Forgive a fee of me. A fiamy, so there's a thesis and a fiamy, one noun, one a verb, and it means uh, to send off, to send off the sins. And have you ever had to rehab after having had a bad accident where you couldn't use, whether it's your arm or uh, like my wife's going through with her ankle right now, Eric with his. Um, quad muscle. If anybody's ever gone through rehab realizes if you haven't used something for a long time, you don't just get up and go walking. Do you know that? Do you ever try? You don't get very far. In fact, if somebody isn't holding on to you, go down in two steps. Well, how about this guy is paralyzed? You think he can just go walking? It's a miracle. And this happens elsewhere in Luke Acts. In some cases, said he's lame from birth, but he went leaping in Acts 2. This shows that when Jesus ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God and poured out the Holy Spirit the day of Pentecost, the work was still going on through the apostles. Scripture is still being fulfilled. He's still the Messiah now reigning from heaven. It says in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That is the Son of Man referenced here. Granted that in some context, like in Ezekiel, Son of Man can, in a Hebraic sense, mean characterized by being man. That's how Ezekiel is addressed. But this is a reference to something more than that because of the context. Authority on earth to forgive sins. It's a reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. That's the claim. The one who receives an everlasting kingdom, which will not 
be destroyed. This shows the identity and authority of Jesus, the promised Messiah. It would be so shameful to know these things and then determine that it's a waste of time preaching Christ. It's so sad that that's happened throughout, especially in big people movements in America, that some people are claiming, oh, we got a great, glorious revival going on. I went to one like that some years ago. Didn't bother to preach Christ. Didn't bother to say one word about release from sins. It said, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we're going to solve problems, and we're going to have Christian nations, and all these things are going to happen. So they're acting more like the crowds that Jesus saw as a temptation than like the man who found release from sins. It would be horrible for someone to say, when are you going to preach on forgiveness of sins? And have a good claim that we hadn't done it. I, that, God forbid that that would happen. Forgiveness of sins comes through Jesus Christ, not through some massive religious movement that looks really enticing to the masses. Now, what's the appropriate response when God does a mighty deed, forgiveness of sins, healing, demonstrating who he is? Luke five twenty-five through 26. And immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. You don't have to be off your feet for very long before you can't get up and walk away because you your feet forget how to work. You need to go to rehab. Not this guy because it's a miracle. He went home glorifying God. In Luke Acts, I ran a search of the Greek word, um, Every time someone is glorifying God, that's good. That is the re- appropriate response to the mighty deeds of God. That's what God is, wants to see, that we glorify God. And the people that are the hypocrites, we saw earlier, are angry when they see ordinary people with nothing going for them glorifying God. And they become angry and they want to silence it. Because they don't want to see Gentiles, lepers, blind, tax gatherers, paralytics, issues of blood, all of this uncleanness and wickedness that they control the process of how anybody could ever perhaps get back into any kind of fellowship. They don't want to glorify God because these people are instantly received. And they go, glory to God. They didn't go through the process of the gatekeepers, the religious people. And they were all struck with astonishment. They began glorifying God. So he's glorifying God. The people who came and saw the healing glorified God. And they were filled with fear, saying, verse 26, we have seen remarkable things today. Interesting word, remarkable, used only once in the New Testament where we get our word paradox, paradoxos. We saw a paradox. And that's translated remarkable, but it's meaning something that has no explanation other than God did something that's never 
happened. We haven't seen. This is unique. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, they could think, well, mere words. But when the lame man got up and walked, it was clear that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And now that he's seated at the right hand of God on high, he still makes clear that we can find forgiveness of sins. And we don't find that through works. We don't find that through pleasing all the people that are the gatekeepers. We find it by going directly to him in repentance and faith. And this lame, which comes up quite a bit in Luke Acts, the blind, this is a prophecy. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Jot it down. I'll read it. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, the streams in the Arabah. So God has done a mighty work, bringing release to a paralyzed man and then healing him to demonstrate his sins were indeed forgiven as Jesus declared. Now, there's so many examples of glorifying God. I'll give you a little sample, okay? Just a little sample. Uh, I, I printed out all of them. Uh, Logo software is a great tool, by the way. Luke uh, 2.20. Shepherds went back glorifying God because of the what they saw and heard. Luke 7.16. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God. It said, great prophet has risen among us. God has visited. Pisco. Potome, I think it's, it's, it's a deponent verb, visited his people. The visitation which was announced earlier by people upon whom the Holy Spirit came and they spoke forth the mighty deeds of God. That's the work of the Spirit, speaking forth the mighty deeds of God and glorifying him. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Luke eighteen forty three. immediately he regained his sight this is a blind beggar, began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. That's the blind beggar on the road to Jericho. The cleansed leper glorifies God. The lame man whose sins are forgiven and he's healed glorifies God. Sinners glorify God. The redeemed glorify God. Dear ones, let's glorify God. Give him the glory. All of this synergistic nonsense taught in America as the work of God doesn't glorify God. Why do I say that? Because preachers are saying, if you learn the secret, you can have your miracle. Call this 800 number and we'll tell you the secret of getting your excuse me your miracle. If you learn how to do it, anybody can do it. That's what they say. That doesn't glorify God. Do you think this layman figured out how to do this? No. These things that are narrated in Luke are 
supernatural acts of God done out of his mercy for lost sinners. That's how I was saved, by God's mercy. Going forward, Acts eleven eighteen, this was when the gospel came to Gentiles, to Peter. Acts 10 and 11, but Acts 11, 18. When they heard this, they wanted to know why he was eating with Gentiles. When, he, when, he, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God. There's another one saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance and he did it to Gentiles. Gentiles and sinners will enter before you, he says to the religious leaders who rejected Christ. Now let's go to one other uh, narrative unit here, and that's the calling of Levi and a banquet. Today is the day we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So I was looking for a section that had a banquet in it. And well, it's very pertinent to celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating a messianic banquet that's yet future that we're looking forward to. Luke 5, 27 through 28. After that, now this continues, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting, there's our word again, in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind got up and began to follow him. He just did it. Amazing. Amazing. Like the fishermen who had the greatest catch ever. From now on, you'll be fishers of men. It's a miracle. God called him and he came. Now, what about the tax gatherers? They weren't exactly the favorite people they had in those days. They were disgusting and hated by everybody alike. Tax gatherers never tend to be that popular anyhow. They particularly were not there. So he responds. Notice, by the way, theomai means to look intently as if to study something, to see what's going on. Like the women in Luke 23, 55, this word is used. They saw the tomb. They saw Jesus, the body, where it was laid in the tomb. They paid attention to it. Later in Acts 1.11, the disciples saw him ascend into heaven, carefully observed what was going on. So he observes Levi. For some reason, Levi is willing to leave and follow him. Let me give you a little material about how tax gatherers are sometimes called tax farmers. And this sort of thing still goes on in different places in the world. Um, well, let me read from Dr. Green what, what that was like. He says, his introduction as a toll collector identifies him within the gospel as a person given to dishonesty and abuse of authority. And in the wider Greco-Roman world as a person of low status. In spite of the possibility for some, but by no means most, entrepreneurs involved in a business of collecting tolls to gain wealth, the Roman elite, says Green, avoided this politically important and potentially 
potentially lucrative activity because of the social stigma intrinsic to it. See, they had an honor-shame society. To be a tax collector is shameful. You can make a lot of money, but you have to accept being rejected by everybody important. uh, Later, we see the guy, the little guy, the sycamore tree, later, who was a tax collector, came to Jesus' house. Though doubtless there were exceptions, toll collectors as a group were despised as snoops, corrupt, the social equivalent of pimps and informants. Anybody want the job? Not good. And they would show favoritism. The first century Jews loathed tax farmers, collaborators, to be rejected. Now let's see what happens. He follows Jesus. He leaves behind his lucrative situation. Luke 5, 29. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd, there's our term again, of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. So this is a banquet, doke, which would mean a feast or a banquet. And uh, it's used in the Greek translation in the Old Testament of Genesis 21.8 for the feast Abraham made for Isaac when he was weaned. It was something for a festive and important occasion. It's also used for the feast in Esther 1.3 by Ahasuerus for his princes and nobles. So Levi called to follow Jesus. By the way, Levi is probably also in Matthew, but we'll say right here in Luke. His name is also Matthew. He comes to follow Jesus, and he brings all these um, tax collectors and other buddies. They, they come. So here's a great feast, a great banquet. So this reception shows Jesus dining with sinners. And this is going to create a lot of conflicts in Luke. And it easily could have an Acts when they were dining with Gentiles who were converted. That's the glorious thing, by the way, about the Lord's Supper. We are participating in the preview of an eschatological banquet in which Jesus dines with sinners redeemed from all the peoples of the world, Jew and Gentile, from all different social strata, mainly rejected sinners that nobody wanted anything to do with, but are willing to trust Christ alone for salvation. That's what the feast is about. The word doke, by the way, is from this word decomai, welcome. So it means a warmly welcoming. And uh, it says in Luke 14, 13 and 14, now in the context, people generally would want to invite somebody that has something to offer them. In other words, if you have a product that you'd like to sell, you can have a big banquet, have people come and then present your product. And in some context, that's fine. But here's what Jesus said in Luke 14, 13, and 14. But when you give a reception 
is our word doke, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Somebody like the fellow who was just healed, right? Verse 14, he will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. They don't have anything to offer. In fact, in their world, the poor, crippled, the lame, and the blind offered one thing, and that is an indication that there's something wrong with you that you'd even invite them. So you're somebody great. I, don't, I wouldn't think that based on who comes to your party. But Jesus came to call sinners to repentance and to give the greatest gift of all, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, eternal redemption to people who had nothing going for them. What do you have to bring to have something to offer to Jesus? You have nothing but your sin. I have nothing to bring. He doesn't need me but he's offered eternal salvation to unjust sinners. God is gracious. He brings sinners to repentance. Let's look at verse 30. So here we have table fellowship with sinners. So what happens? Of course, grumbling. Now this is a reminder. You need to know the the connection of these words. They're pretty amazing. It comes up quite a bit in John chapter 6. This word ganguzo means to grumble. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax gatherers and sinners? Why? So grumble is used in the Old Testament when it's translated into Greek. In Exodus 17.3, Numbers 14.27, and it has to do with the people grumbling about God's provision. Let me read a couple of those. You can jot that down. Exodus Exodus 17.3, Numbers 14.27. It says in 17.3, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. They forgot that they cried out in Egypt under their burden of their slavery for God to save them. And when he did, they later grumbled because they didn't like it. Maybe Egypt wasn't so bad. I, I can't help but think of that song that Keith Green did when I was in the 70s. So you want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure. I always think of that when I look at these passages. Do you think that for any Christian, any of us who've received mercy, released from sins, have been put into the family of God, we had absolutely nothing going for us, and we have eternal riches, is grumbling appropriate? I think we have to say no. It was very tempting sometimes to do so. May God cause us to rejoice and glorify God rather than grumble. Numbers 14, 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? 
I've heard your complaints of the sons of Israel. They are making against me. When they grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against Yahweh. When they grumbled against Jesus in John 6, they're grumbling about the provision. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life. They said, Moses gave us bread. We forgot the part about our father's grumbling. Remember the part where he gave us bread. So you're going to be the bread of life. Where is this bread? And so they grumbled. Now, even in 1 Corinthians 10, it says in verse 10, nor grumble, some of them did, were destroyed by the destroyer. So they're grumbling because God doesn't ask our approval about who he's going to save. Did you know that? And uh, I'm certainly not worthy of being part of the family of God, but God mercifully adopted me. Luke 5, 31 and 32. And Jesus answered again. This is a word that would denote a little different word, but it denotes a debate. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, this doesn't imply that anybody has righteousness outside of Christ. Uh, Preachers have pointed it out rightly for centuries. They thought they were righteous, but they were not. They grumbled that people found righteousness in Christ, and they thought they could be righteous in themselves. Same conflict comes up again in Luke 15, which leads to the parable of the prodigal son and other parables. Repentance, sinners to repentance. Repentance is thematic in Luke Acts, part of the Great Commission. Repentance are for release, forgiveness, release from sins, to be proclaimed in his name to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Luke 15, 1 and 2, now all the tax gatherers, sinners were coming near to listen. Dr. Edwards says the Mishnah describes sinners as, who are the sinners? Gamblers, money lenders, people who race doves for sport, People who trade on Sabbath year, thieves, violent, shepherds, some who glorify God. Now, this is from about A.D. 200 in Mishnah, and, of course, tax gatherers. One more slide. Excuse me. One application. Reversal. Luke 13, 28, 29. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and west, the north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. The big, eternal, end times, messianic banquet. 
those who believe God's promises will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Who are those people? They're the ones who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, if you have not, I've told you about who Jesus is, what he did. He died for sins. He was raised on the third day. He bodily ascended to heaven. His blood was shed for remission of sins for all who trust in him. If you have not before, today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The release from sins that came to the tax gatherer is offered by grace to all who will come and believe. Jesus Christ is the one who has called us to trust in him and believe on him. Today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your goodness, and your mercy for allowing us to look into things that are so glorious that we wouldn't even have thought of them. Thank you that you're merciful to sinners. And, Lord, we thank you that you have put on a banquet that we can participate in if only we trust you alone for salvation. Thank you, Lord. Jesus' name, amen.